brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. Just trying to tread water with the rising technocratic tide inching closer to our front doors every day. It's more important than ever for us to be confident in our widely thought of as controversial positions, the data we put our stock in, and the general philosophy that we can trust nature a bit more than a multi-billion dollar industry that makes its greatest profits off people being unwell, shields itself from legal liability from this so-called safe vaccine, and is ignoring more simple and proven solutions to this situation called COVID in exchange for an experimental and profitable new shot. The social pressure is high, and the blind faith in scientism never more severe, and the importance of researchers who have been focused on these themes well before 2020 has never been more obvious. Which is why I'm very excited to welcome back the ever-wise Sophia Smallstorm. I first discovered Sophia when I saw her detailed presentation on many things that seemed coordinated and fishy around the Sandy Hook shooting, and that became the focus of our first interview. But since then, she's been collecting research and resources for a whole host of conspiratorial threads. Geoengineering and chemtrails, the dangers of glyphosate and other corporate toxins, Morgellons syndrome, the harm caused by cell phone radiation, and the level jump to 5G, as well as many other things. Today marks her fourth appearance on THC over the years, and I would say that someone who's been exposing the digital technocratic takeover as well as the corrupt and dangerous direction we've been steered by Big Pharma for a long time now, is a perfect guest to round out 2020, a year when both of these things have come together with a synergy that should make anyone suspicious. You can always find her work at sophiasmallstorm.com and aboutthesky.com. Her online store, which offers a range of products for what she calls bioremediation, is found at avatarproducts.com. And she also has a great monthly newsletter available by subscription for those who want to stay plugged into her ongoing research. Well, here she is, the SoCal sage of so much, the anti-human agenda exposer and nature promoter, Sophia Smallstorm. Welcome back. Thank you, Greg. The sage of so much. That's good. (laughs) I like that. Thank you. Thank you. I try. I try to do you justice because you have been on these things for so long and it is a real pleasure to have you back. 
So many people have had to take a real crash course this year in nailing down exactly how they feel about viruses, vaccines, optimal health, the true goals of the technocrats, what the World Economic Forum and its sustainable development goals really mean for us. But you had the tail of this tiger well before it roared the roar that has been 2020. And I'm just curious how you've navigated one of the most unique years of our lives now that it is coming to an end. Well, Greg, I am developing a different kind of philosophy than I've ever had before. And that would be to just navigate the present day. And I have really learned from looking into neuroscience and doing a lot of dabbling, a lot of experimentation, that your neurochemistry determines what happens to you because you've basically set your body up for certain kinds of outcomes. And this sounds crazy, but it isn't. And you can change. You can change outcomes by altering the way that you think and especially the way that you think about the future. And the place you start is in the present. Mm, yes, that is well said. I've struggled myself with how much attention to give to the plans of the nefarious few. It's important to stay informed, but fear and stress states are physically harmful. And they say most stress and depression comes from dwelling on the past or worrying about the future. And we should stay rooted in the ongoing now. I think a lot of people are with you on that, not only being present, but that our philosophy should guide us and we should spend time shoring it up because it's becoming more and more obvious. It's really the only thing we can trust. Yeah. And you know, Greg, for so many years, I mean, I started doing this kind of other paths to go down and think about right around the time of the Iraq war. So when was that? 2003, right? And I, of course, I got depressed a few times when I watched certain videos. I remember one was about the peak oil and the end of suburbia, it was called, by that guy, Barry Silverman or somebody. And I watched that thing and I just sat there like a stone. I never felt so bad about the future. And then I got over it. It took a couple of days, but I decided I'm just going to go on living my life because we don't have peak oil right now anyway. Whether peak oil exists or not, at that time, I wasn't mm -hmm. aware of the possibility that the whole thing could be just fear porn. So I got through that and I was waiting. We were all waiting. We were all waiting for this big, you called it something about 2020 came in with a huge roar, right? So 2020 is like we're finally all being pressed into the vortex and we're feeling the power of being pushed into this agenda that we've known about for so long. And in a way, Greg, it's a relief that it's here. Finally, good. We've trained for this. Now let's roll up our sleeves. Let's show the muscle that we've decided we need to put out in these kinds of times. Yes, I really haven't heard that sentiment expressed very much, but I feel you there too because a real fire has been lit for me this year and that exact feeling of this is what we've trained for has really inspired me lately in a way that it hadn't before, so I really think you're right. And to get a bit deeper into this thing, well before 2020, I've had guests on the show that reject germ theory and the whole contagion model and I would find it interesting, but also a little extreme. And I just thought, well, 
I can file that away and decide how I feel about it later. And then later quickly became March of this year. But after wrestling with it, I am on board with this idea that Big Pharma's House of Cards is shaky all the way down to this foundation it's built on. A lot of us have been getting pretty fundamental on our thoughts here. But I also think we still struggle to have the conversation or to find the right angle where our friends and family actually say, huh, that is a really good point. Maybe you're not crazy. And I don't even know if it's possible, but that is my goal here, to flip more people and to help us all find the right approach that might break that spell where the people we love see that we're dealing with a huge lie and ulterior motives that they're not going to find on TV. And it's a tough sell, right? Because this monolithic mono-narrative of the big machine is so all-encompassing. It's a real David and Goliath situation, but what are your thoughts here? So, Greg, there are so many layers to this, and a layer that one doesn't usually get to in one's inquiries is that of human capital market. And if you really want to catch the attention of your friends, family, neighbors, you could mention this human capital market, which I wrote about. And this was not my discovery by any means. It was something that I learned about through the work of Alison McDowell, who is a mother in Philadelphia who started to look into World Economic Forum and their pronouncements and plans. And when you explain the human capital market and the global desire to feed off human beings as financial products, then sometimes people will sit up and look at you differently. Mm -hmm. How coincidental, because when this show airs, Alison McDowell will be the guest right before you. <laughs> oh, she was on then. You interviewed her already. Yes, but it's great that you're onto this thread, too, because it's pretty complex. So it probably does need to be revisited several times before it truly clicks. And maybe it is a better strategy than going after viruses, which is admittedly a pretty tough sell. Although people already consider hedge funds to be pretty moralist and Wall Street greed to be a big problem, so connecting that to the events of 2020 definitely could open some eyes. I'm with you there. Well, Greg, I don't know financial stuff as well as some people, but it did occur to me after I looked into Alison McDowell that, do you remember the housing bubble and how we had all these fraudulent financial products made out of our houses. So there were two numbers that go with any kind of home purchase. Usually there's usually a mortgage or a loan number, and then there's usually the parcel number, right? Sure. And I think this is what's happening with human beings. So the fraudulent activity surrounded the separation of the loan from the parcel number, and then the Goldman Sachs types got really busy engineering and creating derivatives and all kinds of financial products on these mortgages and loans that they bought and sold and wheeled and dealed, and then the whole thing imploded. Now, I think they're going to be doing that with human beings. Your digital ID will be the separated product from your warm body. And they will be, you know, flim-flamming 
in cyberspace, in the cyber world, with these digital IDs, and they will be buying and selling their investments, their impact investments, their pay-for-success investments that stem from the wreckage of human lives and the fact that by then everybody will have a digital identification, a number. See what I'm saying? I do. Well said. And these processes are new, but not unlike things we've seen before when people really think about it. And it's really important to get a handle on this connective tissue between big data, big pharma, and Wall Street, as daunting as it might be. And there are many different little threads to look at that point to it. I wanted to read a couple paragraphs I grabbed from one of your newsletters, and I think part of this might be a quote from Allison's blog that you covered, but it reads, Moderna, which has secured enormous investments over the past few years, is inching closer to being a commercial company and developing personalized therapies for a wide range of diseases, including cancer. In order to create these personalized medicines, the Cambridge, Massachusetts-based company relies on gene sequencing and a partnership with one of the world's largest companies, Amazon. Now how about that? It's Amazon's on-demand cloud computing that Moderna will be using to compare every letter of DNA in the sequencing process, said their CEO to CNBC. The Times of Israel reports that Moderna has been funded with nearly a billion dollars from the U.S. government in spite of never having produced a vaccine and never having brought a product to market. And that's pretty wild. Those are great points. I don't trust Pfizer either, but at least they're not emerging out of nowhere. That should tell us something. We're all instructed to shelter in place, but at the top, they're making new deals, forming new companies, shuffling around billions of dollars, and they're quite active in a way that makes me think that they don't have the same level of concern over the actual thing that's supposed to be a catalyst for all this. Something people should probably think about. <laughs> Yeah, that was from my July-August newsletter that you read. Now, how about that? It's Amazon's. And the other part of it was quotes from her blog. Yeah. Actually, no, it's from biospace.com hmm. that you read. That's where I took it from. But yeah, Moderna never brought anything to market. Moderna got a billion dollars from the feds to produce this vaccine, the mRNA vaccine. Now, I don't know if you're familiar. Sometimes it takes... A little bit of revisiting to really have it sink in so that you can regurgitate it, what this messenger RNA stuff is. And that was covered in that newsletter. And basically, messenger RNA vaccines, they depart from other vaccines altogether. Now, we could argue, some would, that, well, vaccines have never been safe or effective, blah, blah, blah. But vaccines are conventionally thought of as preventive medicine, okay? Even though you and I know that that's not quite true, not true at all, right? This mRNA vaccine is utterly different. It's utterly different in that what it does is it introduces into the cell by electroporation, meaning it's a triple needle vaccine, vaccination. Vaccination is the shot and vaccine is the material that's delivered. So two needles, picture you know, like a tripod, Neptune's trident is what I want to say. And the middle needle will deliver the syringe contents and the two side needles are electrodes. And they shock 
open the voltage-gated channels on the cell, the ports. That's why it's called electroporation, the pores or ports of the cell. And the material gets in really fast. The cell is now open. And the cell has been triggered piezoelectrically to open because that's one of my favorite topics, and I'm reading a giant book on it now. It's very interesting. But anyway, the material that's delivered in this vaccine is software. That's why Moderna calls it the software of life. And that vaccine sends your cells new instructions. And I'm going to say this here. This is my wording. Non-human instructions. Instructions that depart from normal human biology. Telling the cells to make and how to make different proteins. Now, proteins, Greg, are the workhorses of the body. Proteins, they are the structural materials. They are the transport mechanisms. They're in messengers like enzymes and hormones. They're in all these different materials. They're widely, widely used by the body. And if suddenly your cells get instructions to make proteins differently that are not the way human beings normally make proteins, what does that add up to? It adds up to GMO instruction. We will become genetically modified organisms, right? And now here's the kicker. We would receive genetic modification. Anyone who accepts one of these vaccines by way of electroporation vaccination, and there's no taking out. Once those instructions go into your body, you cannot erase them, delete them, remove them, suck them out. They are now part of your body. And these vaccines are constructed, I've been doing some research with another friend, in a way that gets the content to circulate quickly through the body from cell type to cell type to cell type. So the vaccine companies very conveniently obtained immunity, legal immunity, many, many years ago. You can't sue them. So now, because they're, I'm going to use the word, palming off, they're palming off GMO instructions to yourselves as a vaccine. But it's not like any vaccine that's ever come before it and can be taken out of your body. And you can't do a thing about it if you don't like the result. If you don't like the fact that you're GMO and now you're all weird and you can feel it and strange things are happening in your body, you can't say anything to anyone about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, I mean, the stakes are super high. It is a decision that once you make it, you can't unmake it. But in the conversations I'm having, people just, I guess they already look at me as a skeptical, conspiracy-minded person. Surprise, surprise. And so they take what I say and my alternative angles with a grain of salt. But they're saying things like, well, Pfizer's telling us it's 95% effective. The science is sound. And then when I start talking about nanobots and synthetic life, that's definitely a bridge too far. It's like really throwing someone in the deep end of the pool and they kind of just turn off. I don't know. I, I don't understand what, what the better approach is to, to reach people before they do get this crucial shot. I've tried to explain the virus itself or this COVID thing itself. You know, it's obviously just a label, but it's like, what are you so scared of? Aren't you better off taking your chances with that when you really look at the survival rate and all that stuff as opposed to this? But I, I guess I'm still struggling with the best approach to, 
to turn more people on? Well, Greg, you know, this is a fine art and you have to tweak it every time you're in front of someone. And you also have to realize that you can't communicate successfully to most of these people. But as they say in advertising, five to eight exposures creates a sale, Mm. right? (laughs) So maybe they'll hear it from more than one person in different ways. And then the fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth time they get wind of some of these arguments that you're trying to present and I'm trying to present, they'll say, okay, I get it now. But one other thing I wanted to bring up, and again, I am no expert. I have a, let's just call it a creative mind, all right, imagination. Maybe it works over time. But Greg, I was reading all kinds of things about the PCR test, and I'm not trying to get too scientific here. I'm just doing a what if. Let's theorize, yes? Mm -hmm. So we know that this polymerase chain reaction test should not be diagnostically used, but it is being diagnostically used. We also know that it looks for certain genetic tags, many of them. And let's say two months ago or so, maybe more, there was a lot of stuff online about how one of the sequences that the PCR test looks for is human chromosome 8, right? Mm -hmm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. So... A lot of people were talking about it, writing about it, proving it in the documents that showed what the PCR test for COVID was looking for. And I said to myself, what is chromosome 8? Do you know? I don't. All right. So I looked it up. And it is the chromosome for brain development. Or it is a chromosome related to brain development. So I said, oh, how interesting. Now... Related to brain development. All right. So the word on the internet was, well, you know, if everybody has chromosome 8, because we all have 23 sets of chromosomes, and 8 is going to be one of them. So if everybody has it, then you're going to test positive. Well, that wasn't my concern. My concern was, what are the other tags? What did they relate to? Maybe they're so minute that it's not easy to figure out what they specifically relate to, but this PCR test, you're supposed to take this COVID test repeatedly. There are sports players who take it every day. And so let's keep theorizing. I thought to myself, what if it's a sampling? It's actually collecting samples of your genome and samples by the minute to the minute. So you'll have a test one week and then two weeks later you have another test. Now they have fresh samples. And what if they are building on the blockchain a profile of your genome every time they take these genetic samplings from you by way of this PCR test, right? Mm -hmm. So they're mapping you. They're mapping your particular genome on their blockchain. So when you come in for a test, your digital ID connects you to the part of the blockchain that is all your data. And guess what? Part of that data is this genome map that they continually build. Now, let's go back to mRNA and its CEO who says, this is personalized therapy, personalized medicine. So, Greg, did you ever go to Home Depot to buy paint? Yes. And you go up to the console with your swatch, your little color swatch, and it's 
one color selection out of, you know, hundreds from all the different shades and brands and whatnot. And you give it to the guy and he says, all right, he grabs it and he goes to dispensers and he pumps out white and he pumps out a little umber and he pumps out some red and he pumps out some yellow and he puts it on a big, huge spinner and he makes your paint. So what if based on this genomic map they have of you on their blockchain from all your tests, when you go for the COVID vaccine, they manage to create a vaccine that's just for you because they know your chromosome eight. They know where your brain development is because they have seen it in all their tests. They know where all your hormonal stuff is going and is. They know your placement in real time. That's what 5G is for, real time placement and image making. They're making you a digital twin in data form. And they create a vaccine right there at the COVID vaccine center, and it goes into you. It's made for you. It's different from everybody else's. Because as you read Alison McDowell, you understand that their goal here is to standardize us. So your standardization would differ from mine because you're different from me. But if they want to make us both the same, then they have to give us the agents of uniformity in the appropriate dosages, right? One mixture for you and another one for me, but eventually we'll get to the same static level. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely think things are going that direction, but do we have any evidence that they're saving these test samples or that they're going to make alterations to the vaccine based on individual profiles? Because everything I'm hearing is that they're just making 300 million batches and we're all just going to take it. And that's something I've tried to say to people is like, we know with almost any pharmaceutical, different people have different reactions. So where is the science that says you can make one blanket thing and give it to every person and we're all now safe? It's just a blind faith and scientism kind of thing. And it seems like with this vaccine, I haven't seen anything that suggests that they're going to actually take into consideration our particular genetic profile. That would almost make it an easier sell to get people to take the vaccine. But the fact that it is just this blanket concoction given to everyone, despite our differences, despite one person's allergies or this or that, I mean, that's to me the thing that should make people more worried about taking it. Greg. I believe the first dispensation of the COVID vaccine will be saline solution. And all those people who say, oh, yeah, I'll be the first in line, they will get nothing but salt water because nothing will happen, no ill effects. They'll start giving the real stuff. And eventually the plan is to personalize medicine. So they need your genome. They need your digital map on the blockchain that is very, very detailed. This is what biocapitalism is about. This is what biometrics are about. They're going to take your biological data and make a figure of you in data. This is what 5G is about. They'll target you specifically with sensors and whatnot for mind control purposes, behavioral augmentation. But definitely the idea behind the mRNA vaccine is personalized genetic modification. Hmm. Well, 
let's talk about health and wellness kind of in general, because I know you graduated from Brown University and you heavily considered medical school. So you do have a knack for this sort of material, but the ways our bodies work, the best approaches to health, what the pharmaceutical industry is really doing to us, these things can seem very complex and hard to feel confident in for a lay person. But I recently heard you talking about oxidative stress, and I think it cuts to the core of what causes illness in the body to begin with. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Because I think that it helps to understand that maybe Pig Farm has been going about these petrochemical pills all wrong because most things do seem to come down to oxidative stress. Well, it isn't that they're going about it all wrong. It's just that that's the phase they're in. I mean, at one time, they treated us with leeches, bleeding us with leeches stuck to our bodies because they thought that that was curative, right? Or helpful. Mm -hmm. And today we laugh and we go, oh my God, taking people's blood with a leech, that's not going to get them better. Lobotomies too would be another one of those things that, what the hell are you doing? Right. So we are in an age of what's called chemical medicine where they make man-made chemical compounds and they've sold these to the public for many decades now as curative treatments. And this originates with the theory that germs, the bacteria that we've coexisted with, that live inside us to the tune of quadrillions, that these little imported, incorporated entities are killing us. When the fact is that bacteria are pleomorphic, they are the trash men of the body. They are very helpful little agents that crowd our gut, our intestines. They live on the organs, in the skin. It's said that the blood is sterile and bacteria-free, but that's not really true because there's lots of stuff thrown into the bloodstream to address different situations. So the bacteria are, in fact, after the inflammatory process, which is the body's first order of defense in times of injury or illness. Both injury and illness are forms of deterioration of cells, and they equate to oxidative stress or can be caused by or are caused by oxidative stress. Like when you bash into the wall and your knee suddenly has big bump on it and flames up, gets red, it gets swollen, and you see bruised material, red and blue blood vessel stuff underneath the skin. That's a blunt trauma injury. And the same inflammatory process takes place as when you inhale over, let's say, a can of gasoline and you take in fumes and your lungs get irritated and you might throw up and that's inflammation as well. Those are part of the immune response and the immune response always involves inflammation. But if the inflammatory process, which is a very brilliant sequence of cell and subcellular componentry, I call them battalions. They're like battalions of the army. They go to the site of the damage and they start acting. They start eating, digesting, decomposing. They bring other effects with them. Some will release histamine. Some will be counterhistamine. So they negate each other after the first battalion has done its job. The second battalion comes in and frequently these different like neutrophils, eosinophils, macrophages, they will actually consume 
the first battalion that came before them. And if none of this together, the army working, deployed to heal the breakdown, which is caused by oxidative stress, means that the cell is not able to take up enough energy to do its maintenance or repairs of house or housekeeping. It has to be helped, right? So oxidation just means that energy is burned and isn't being supplied. And it's the mitochondria inside your cells, which are the cell's own internal engines, that create supposedly the electrons from that fuel the ATP that fuels the cell to do its work. Now, I'm reading a very interesting manuscript which throws the germ theory on its ass and will make that really old hat when this is properly understood. So germ theory and terrain theory is just an intermediary step. It's where we have gotten so far. And so what happens in the body is if the inflammatory process with all its battalions can't do the healing job well enough, bacteria are called in. Bacteria, fungi, organisms that live in your gut are released or elsewhere in the body. They're released into the bloodstream. They're told to go to such and such place and start helping eat the organic debris because the lysosomes and whatnot, the endosomes, which is just a generic term, it doesn't mean anything, like exosome is a generic term. Those materials can't do the job by themselves. So you go, you help. And the bacteria come along, and based on the buffet they're given, they will actually change form, meaning they can go from rod-shaped to cylindrical to round, depending on what they're eating. So now when the scientist or doctor takes a tissue sample of a person who's ill and he looks in his microscope and says, oh, look at these little spiral things. These are spiral bacteria. These must cause the condition that this person has. No, those spiral bacteria formed because they were part of the bacterial population in the body deployed to help in this inflammatory response world. And they took on a spiral shape based on what they were eating. And so they're not the cause, they are part of the healing process, right? And so what happens when you get a bacterial infection is that the bacteria's own waste products are very, very strong. They are very harmful to the bacteria. Bacteria cannot afford to multiply in numbers that are too great because they will be killed by their own waste products. So their population is kept in check in that way. But if your bloodstream should shoot off with the waste products of bacteria and those toxic waste products get delivered to other parts of your body, now you have what's called a sepsis state, septic infection, and they give you antibiotics in the hospital and that puts the number of bacteria down again so you can play catch up in your body. So I say that the deployment of bacteria constitutes calling in the navy. So the army was the battalions of cells in the inflammatory process. The navy is the ocean of blood carrying little ships, which are the bacteria and the fungi, and they come to the site of disrepair, and they start eating up the organic debris. Now let's say that doesn't do the job either. Then the air force is called in, and the air force are what... Andy Kaufman and other people call exosomes. This is just a generic word. It's like saying planes. 
When I say, I saw an airplane, you're going to tell me what kind, what kind, right? Well, I saw a B-52, or I saw a such and such type of helicopter, which is not even an airplane, but it's a flying machine. So I am theorizing that at that point, the cells make exosomes. And many kinds of exosomes can be made. And these exosomes in particular are ordered up and communicated for through the infrared signaling going through the gap junctions between cells. The sick cell says, hey, everything has been tried and I'm still dying and I need help. Send the Air Force. Send the planes. So the exosomes are the planes that come from healthy cells and they get into the bloodstream. And because if you look at coronavirus, an exosome, it has spikes on it. And these are called spike proteins. And these are piezoelectric. So these spikes hit the wall of the cell, the outer membrane, just like the electroporation needles releasing a voltage. And they create voltage-gated openings in the cell walls. It's a voltage-caused opening. And so the exosomes slip into the cell where they then, because they're piezoelectric, they confer electrons to the cell. Because ultimately, oxidative stress means not enough electrons being supplied, and so the cell is going to die. So I believe there are cases when cells make exosomes and send them out as well for communication purposes or for relaying purposes, messenger purposes. So anyway, that would be the Air Force. Just the way the fuel tankers come into contact with planes that don't have enough fuel and in midair they give a new fuel supply. So the exosomes with their piezoelectric capacity are like fuel tankers from the Air Force that come in and save the day at the very end of the line. Hmm. I really like the analogies there and I think it helps to recontextualize our health and have people understand really what's going on under the hood. When I listen to the more esoteric or holistically minded doctors that have this whole other health paradigm, it seems like they're also emphasizing the electrical systems of the body and the importance of our bodies or really our blood requiring a negative charge. I mean, this is a big deal, right? Yes, because the water in the body is structured water and everything in the world, really, electromagnetism is the dominating force of life. Even though it's not alive itself, lots of people would say, but it, you know, Frankenstein, the movie where the monster, they put electrodes on him and then they enlivened him. They gave him life, right? Right, right. The final step. Yeah. So the body is like that too. And we have in our bodies cells with a nucleus and with cytoplasm. That's the watery substance in the cell around the nucleus. Just like if you cracked an egg, you would see the yolk, which is the nucleus. And an egg is the biggest cell there is. It's one cell. That's it. But it's huge. And the cytoplasm is the egg white. And the cytoplasm in human cells is crystalline in nature. It has crystal nature water in it. 
And the newest thinking is that the nucleus, the mitochondria in the cells, and ATP, the fuel molecule of the cell, that ATP's job is to keep the charge in the cytoplasm negative. And that negative charge means, negative means the presence of electrons. If electrons are present, there's electricity, the charge is negative. And that negative charge keeps us going. So when your cells lose negative charge, that equates to oxidative stress. And they start to wane and wither and fare poorly. So they need more electricity. And that's why we have things like TENS therapy, T-E-N-S, TENS units, which deliver a little voltage, you know, charges to your skin on different areas. You can go outside and you can charge your body simply by walking barefoot. This is why people love to garden, because they have their hands in the soil. The soil is conductive. The Earth's crust is conductive. There's mild electron flow caused by lightning, which occurs all over the Earth all the time. So there's a very mild electrical current in the surface of the Earth. And this is what we were accustomed to at one time. We lived barefoot. We were outside. We were sitting on the ground, walking on the ground. And now it's rubber shoes, rubber shoes, carpets, sealed flooring, asphalt roads. And very few people ever get what's called free electrons from the Earth. And imagine how poor they are, how electron deficient they are, Greg. And that's the basis of degenerative disease, of degeneration. Hmm. I think it's so fascinating. And I've heard a lot of people talking about the charge in our blood, like the magnetism of it, that that is more what moves the blood through the veins than the heart. We're told the heart is this pump, but how logical is it that this one pump gets all the blood through our, our body to our fingertips and our toes? It's really the, the negative charge of the cells in the shoot of our veins. And I've been told from some of these alternative doctors that the heart is more like a, a dam. It's like a series of vortices to manage that blood flow. And it's just really interesting in the context of heart disease being the number one killer. People are going in, getting stents put in their heart, quadruple bypasses, and we don't even really understand the heart, it's, it seems. Now, here are some interesting things about the heart. The heart, you could call it a manager of blood flow. You could also call it a battery. It's like a big battery mm. because the squeezing of the main pumping chamber, as they call it, pumping, is the left ventricle. So the heart, the vena cava deliver used up blood into the right atrium, if I have it right. And that atrium gives a squeeze, or actually a, I think it's a valve that opens, and the blood is dropped into the right ventricle. The ventricle gives a squeeze, and that squeeze charges the blood slightly, sends it to the lungs, and the lungs fill it with oxygen, and then it comes back. There's the pulmonary artery in between the heart and the lung. And it's coming back into the left atrium at the top of the heart, where when there's enough of it, the valve opens, and the atrium might squeeze it as well, drops it into the left ventricle, which is the big part of the heart that we were told pumps. 
So that's just a big battery. It gives a big squeeze. And there's all piezoelectricity in these squeezes because when muscles contract, and that's what the heart is, it's a muscle, there are piezo subcomponents, crystal type components in the muscle tissue, and they get charged because the ground rule of piezoelectricity is when you apply a force, a mechanical force, a pressure, it's the same as a frequency. And when frequency is applied to a piezo crystal, that crystal generates a voltage and vice versa. When voltage is applied to a piezo crystal, it compresses and it trembles and it releases a frequency. So piezoelectric effect is a twin of the photoelectric effect in the body, which is what I'm learning about now, but I don't know nearly enough to talk about it. So the piezoelectric effect runs our body, and the people in science and medicine are just appallingly under-informed about piezoelectricity. It was Pierre Curie in the late 1800s with his brother Jacques who discovered the piezoelectric effect. Piezo, I believe, is a Greek word for pressure or squeeze. And Pierre left it. He should have been called Piezo Curie. <laughs> but Pierre Curie left his studies of crystals and the piezo effect to join Marie in her quest to isolate radium. But anyway, piezoelectricity, in my view, is key to everything. And in terms of the heart, the heart is a charger. That last ventricular squeeze gives the newly oxygenated blood a bunch of voltage and causes it to spin into the arteries. You were using the word veins. Veins is for the return. Arteries is for the delivery, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the endothelium of the arteries, the inner wall, I believe, has tons of piezo components in it, piezo cells. So piezoelectric, the molecules have to be arranged in a certain lattice configuration. Piezoelectricity is used in industry all the time. It's used in your Bic lighter. It's used in audio, microphones, speakers where there's frequency, like sound waves are a frequency, and it's called transduction, when sound waves are converted into electrical signals and then unconverted or reconverted. So in the example of the lighter, when you flick your bic, your thumb pushes down on that little thing on the lighter, and that little lever or whatever you want to call it, switch, squeezes a piezo crystal. And the piezo crystal is feeling a mechanical force, pressure, and it's going out, and it releases a voltage. So that's what lights the fuel in the lighter, and you get a flame. And that's how the heart sends this voltage-charged blood spinning, spinning into the artery, where the force of the blood hitting the endothelium, the cells in the endothelium, by the force of being struck by the spinning blood, they recharge the blood right? Because force generates voltage. So as that blood keeps spinning and spinning, it gets recharged by the cells in the endothelium. And that's how it makes its way to your toes. Hmm. And then to come back, when your muscles, when you move, your muscles squeeze piezocrystals that they have in them, and that charges the blood in the veins and pushes back, pushes it back up. Well, I appreciate that explanation. It does make a lot of sense. It seems like all the most important things of the body are really what the medical paradigm is completely missing or intentionally 
ignoring because they've built this whole system on, you know, we have to sell these pills for these individualized conditions when really they're not looking at the body holistically. They're, I guess, not identifying oxidative stress appropriately. And they're always treating the symptoms. And this is a big aspect of these things where the pills might treat the symptoms. It might stop your nose from running. It might lower the fever or stop an ache or a pain. But why is this a bad approach? Because the symptoms emerge for a reason, right? It's like you're attacking the signal rather than attacking the problem. The symptoms, Greg, are always part of the inflammatory response process. So when you have the flu, which is not a viral-caused illness, but let's just say, or you feel crappy, you feel like a truck ran me over, oh my God, my head aches, my muscles ache, my joints ache. Your muscles and joints and head are aching because of the inflammatory response, number one. Every tissues in your body are blowing up because the body wants to deliver all these repair materials as fast as possible and as effectively as possible. But also the prostaglandins, those are, God, I used to know exactly what they were. They're a class of inflammatory healing agents and they're protein polypeptides. I remember that. And they get going on your body and they cause you a lot of pain. So when you take ibuprofen and aspirin and Tylenol, these are all different prostaglandin suppressors. So they suppress the work of the immune system and the inflammatory response phases and stages, and you don't feel the pain, and you think you're getting better. So aspirin is it's an across-the-board prostaglandin suppressor like ibuprofen, but each targets slightly different range of prostaglandins. Tylenol targets other prostaglandins that are involved in generating fever, for instance. So Tylenol brings your fever down, but it's not helping you get better. So when you take these medications, whether they're over-the-counter or prescribed, all they do is suppress symptoms of the inflammatory response mechanism of your body, and they just get in the way, and they stop and interfere with your own healing process. And so you may never get well, or you may get imperfectly well, in which case you will catch a cold again or get the flu again because you didn't fix it the first time. If you are an athlete and you sprain your ankle and your doctor tells you to bandage with an ACE bandage or put a big, you know, support, elastic support, your body has blown your ankle up so that it can deliver all these healing agents quickly and effectively. And your doctor says, elevate your leg. Why are you draining the blood out of your leg and putting this big tight bandage on it when your body wants this area blown up? Your body rigidifies that particular joint and causes it a lot of pain because it's telling you, sit still and don't move. I'm fixing this. Then they tell you to ice it. Why do you want to freeze and constrict the tissues that your body has heated up and opened? So when you use ice and whatnot on a chronic you know, like an athletic injury for weeks and weeks or years, some people do. I know people who ice their ankle every time they do a sport. And then 10 years down the road, it still hasn't healed. Are you surprised why? Hmm. (laughs) Man, I I do just love looking at our holistic system, our body in a completely new way because it seems more magical. It seems more, um, uh, 
intelligent. It seems more self-sufficient. It seems more capable of handling our problems than the totality of Western medicine. And it's just interesting. And, oh, sorry, if you're going to say something. Yeah, I was going to, I just thought of something very unusual, but I want to lead up to it. So we were in chemical medicine. We've moved into radiation medicine, where you go and you get scanned. You get this MRI or PET scan or CAT scan or this scan or that scan. And they tell you what's wrong with you based on the scans. And then we're moving through radiation medicine into genetic medicine. That's what this personalized gene therapy is all about. Oh, now we're going to just turn off all of the where you're predisposed to get X, Y, and Z, we'll turn off your genes for that, right? That's what they're telling us. So we're moving into genetic medicine, but eventually we're going to be in, I don't know, if they do it right, they will reach electric medicine or light medicine because so much of real healing is predicated on enough exposure to electrons and light, the right balance of electricity in your body. But I'm going to tell you something really wild. This is my own theory based on some of the stuff I've been studying in the last year. Let's say you were a wild savage or at some tribal type living in the wild with nothing, nothing sophisticated at hand and you lived in a little cluster of huts or villages or whatever and you fell down and you had an injury and you lay there moaning and your people came and they helped you brought you some food and you lay there and it was realized in your community and you realized yourself well I can't lie here forever I'm gonna have to get up and I have to contribute I have to do my thing in my little group right the will to heal would turn on. You would go, all right, I'm ready. I've got to be ready to go in a couple of days because these people need me. And your pineal gland would give a giant piezoelectric charge. And it would generate enormous amounts of neurochemicals and neurotransmitters. And you would then heal very quickly. This is scientific fact. You can will yourself into having a very powerful healing response. Mm -hmm. If you lie in a bed and you wait for the doctor and you're in a hospital and these nurses are bustling around and you think, oh, they know, I don't know. What am I going to do? How long am I going to be here? And they put you on a drug regimen for this many weeks you have to get a scan in this many weeks, you're not going to heal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like it. There's a lot of uh, conversation about what the pineal is really for. Maybe that was its use at a certain time. The pineal gland continues to be a crystal-filled, let's just say, organ. And it can be charged and activated whenever by you. I like it. And so, you know, we're talking about this alternative paradigm. How would you make sure your body is negatively charged or that your blood is negatively charged and devoid of oxidative stress? If that is the number one thing that all these little micro conditions spill out of, how do we use this new information for our greatest benefit? Greg, this is why and where I started the whole bioremediation thing on my tiny little 
wobblystoreavatarproducts.com. I was turned on to iodine by a friend who was a nutritionist. She was not even a friend. She was just somebody I met. And it all started this way. Somebody emailed me and wanted to buy a DVD and lived locally and wanted me to deliver it. It was a $5 DVD, Clifford Kynacom, Aerosol Crimes. And I said, I don't do $5 deliveries. I mean, really, I have to drive somewhere to deliver $5 product? And she said, I understand. And the way she said it was so nice that I thought the better of myself. I said, where do you live? And she told me. I said, okay, that's near where I go when I walk on the beach. I'll just come over with the $5 DVD. You give me the five bucks. And she had been in bed for three years, very, very critically ill, chronically ill. And she told me that iodine got her out of bed. So I sat there and I listened to her talking about iodine and all these bells went off in my head. It was just like a resonance. And I said to her, do you have some iodine? Could I buy some from you? And she said, yes. And I took a bottle and I started to take just a couple of drops a day. And my God, within two weeks, I felt like I was, like I felt in the summer, you know, this was November when I usually feel draggy because they change the time and the light is really waning and you don't feel like going out and exercising and now I'm like, I feel in July and August, lean, mean, fighting machines, swimming in the ocean. I couldn't believe it. And I realized it has to be this iodine. And I started studying iodine. Iodine is actually a metal, as magnesium is as well. And iodine is negatively charged. It's one of the halogens. If you look for it in the periodic table, it's right by fluorine, chlorine, bromine. And they're very similar. And what these people have done in big pharma and the world at large the overlords, they have filled our world with similar molecules to iodine, iodine's dangerous cousins, I call them, chlorine, fluorine, and bromine. And the poor body is a biochemical blind man. It just doesn't know that chlorine, fluorine, and bromine are not iodine because they're so similar in structure in electromagnetic charge. So when you have fluoridated water, when you have chlorine and you're drinking water as well in the pool, in Clorox that you wash your clothes with and Ajax and Comet and you have bromine and fire retardants and it's sprayed on all kinds of stuff to like they irradiate everything in warehouses with fluoride sprays and bromine to prevent bugs and weevils and things from getting into the food that they're going to ship and store. So your body is taking up those halogens which Iodine is a halogen as well. It's in that chemical family, that elemental family. Your body is making its thyroid hormone out of chlorine, fluorine, and bromine instead of iodine. So when you get iodine on your cell receptors instead of the bad guys, your body starts to change. You start to detoxify. You start to feel normal. You start to get your charge back. Your ATP starts to fill in more easily and your cells have more to work with. Magnesium the same. Magnesium is the most dominant ion for the interior of the cell. It helps to maintain the cytoplasm's metabolic balance. But your body, now this is very interesting to me when I figured it out. I used to have a booth at a farmer's market. You were there, right? You mm -hmm, saw me. There. Mm -hmm. And for years, Greg, I would watch these old people because we have a lot of old people come to San Diego from like Wisconsin and Minnesota for the winter. They're called snowbirds. So these old people would walk through the farmer's market with their walkers and they would have this parchment, paper-like skin and 
very, you know, swollen ankles and all kinds of weird discoloration in their veins and just very decrepit shape. And that's when I realized that the body has a hierarchy of importance when it comes to its systems. Of primary importance are the brain, the heart, and the lungs. So your body will keep the brain, the heart, and the lungs in the best condition possible, but it will steal nutrients and steal energy and particularly steal magnesium from other systems. So the next systems to go are the muscles and the bones and the skin. So your skin, muscles, and bones are giving up their nutrients, their minerals to the bloodstream to furnish the heart, the lungs, and the brain to keep those guys going. So that's where you get all this very pitiful degeneration in older people. They are magnesium deficient. They are iodine deficient. They are electron deficient. If they just sat outside with their bare feet on the earth, if they just looked into the sun, if they just took some iodine, took some magnesium, they would start feeling a lot better and getting a lot more energy back. So I began to sell magnesium iodine. Also, certain grounding systems, but I don't do that publicly. You have to contact me personally for that. And this product, Restore, which is another redox signaling asset in your body. So those are the things. I wanted to bring them to other people so they could feel much better. And when you feel better, Greg, you think better, you have a better attitude toward this crazy world we're living in, and you can start navigating and strategizing more creatively. Mm-hmm. Yes. And as we're nearing the end of this thing, it's always important to talk about solutions. I know neither one of us will take the vaccine, but there's bound to be some social consequences for that. How do you plan on dealing with the fallout? Have you thought about that? You mean, how do I plan to deal with the future of the vaccine crazed world? Yeah, of not having a of COVID passport and maybe not getting on a plane again. And Ticketmaster said you have to have vaccine verification to come to a concert. I don't know how severe this is going to get, but there will be consequences for resisting this vaccine. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night, separating friends and family, driving a wedge between different groups of people, really pushing us outside of the circle. I don't know how serious it's going to get. I don't know how many people will also resist. That's a huge factor. Like, how strong are our numbers? But when you think about the future and not being willing to get this vaccine and the consequences for it, what do you think about? Greg, as I said at the very beginning of the show, I live day by day. There is no sense getting all worked up about what hasn't happened. All right? And every day you are the engineer of neurochemistry that will create tomorrow. So I have to do that in my life. I already don't fly anymore. I don't go to concerts. So those two things I'm not going to miss. But there will be other things, obviously, because it's not going to stop at flying and ball games and movie theaters and whatever. So I'm going to deal with it when it arrives, and I have to preserve my resilience, my imagination. I did a newsletter on imagination. I've been studying neurochemistry as much as I can. I've been working out my own little experiments in the present to see how the neurochemistry I create every day affects 
outcomes in the present. And that's, to me, the way to do it. Well, maybe you can elaborate on that because we've heard things like uh, what we concentrate on seems to come to fruition. There's the power of manifestation. There's willpower. There's the negative effects of fear and stress and worry. And a lot of this does start in the mind. It's, it's kind of interesting to really think about how much starts in our mind, probably more than we give it credit for on a daily basis. Well, I'll tell you this, Greg. I believe they are shaping us very industriously and relentlessly without cessation into permanent creatures of reaction and response. And they have taken away from us our intention, our powers of intention and creativity. We are creatures of creation, creativity, and intention. That doesn't mean somebody misunderstood me on a radio show and he thought I said, we are creatures of creation, meaning the creator created us. Fine, you can <laughs> say that. I'm saying we have creative power. We have intention in us. And when our intention is weakened and it's taken out of us, it's almost like that stripping becomes exported and it hovers over us. And we know that we have given up our intention and that makes us even weaker. Hmm. So our intention and our ability to create is the best thing we have going for us. The best thing. I have improvised solutions to little problems, household problems that have been quite amazing. And yet they're made of, you know, how I did it. And this isn't complicated stuff. It's just happenstance. Something happens to be within reach. And so I use it. Mm -hmm. But that's the way we have to live our lives. On the bigger concepts, we have to operate like that as well. Fair enough. Well, I think a lot of people have heard about manifestation and intention and creation and imagination, but the terms sometimes seem a little vague because they definitely aren't drilled into us in the school system that we have. How can we implement things that you might have picked up on from this study, or how can we? take advantage of this knowledge and integrate it into our lives? Well, first of all, Greg, we have to want to do something. And I have encountered a lot of people who want to be afraid. Their neurochemistry is set up that way. It's their fix. They need their daily fear fix. They need to go to this website and then read about these terrible things and say, oh me, oh my, and call up somebody and tell them. And they go, yeah, I read that too. And did you hear about such and such? All right. That's never going to get you anywhere. That's going to create the very future that you're afraid of because your neurochemistry is that way. Those hormones are pouring through your axons and dendrites. You're wired like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so if somebody bestowed this heavenly happiness on you, what would you do? Would you even feel it? <laughs> right. It's like your body's chemical reactions don't really recognize the difference between some hypothetical future problem you're worried about and what's right in front of you. Your body just reacts to what your mind's focused on. Let's go back to the pineal gland, all right? Let's call that a piezoelectric crystal, just like your heart, the ventricle in your heart. Now, 
Thank God our heart beats on its own. So it's always being used. It's always charging. It's squeezing. It's making piezo voltage all the time, whether we like it or not. It's going, right? Mm -hmm. The pineal gland, let's say that everything was a product of the pineal gland, everything you wanted. And you said, you know what? I need a pack of Hanes t-shirts. And you squeezed your pineal gland, which is kind of what you do. And you get in your car and you drive to Target and you buy them. But let's say you were actually squeezing for less tangible, less directly navigable or strategizable things. I'm going to tell you something. This is really weird. But I was taking a walk two days ago and I said to myself, wouldn't it be nice if I had a neighbor that I could go swimming with at this swimming pool that I go to? And I swear to God, I heard this tap, tap, tap of feet. And this woman ran by me with her dog. And I looked at her and I said, well, don't I know you from the swimming pool? The one that has now by reservation only as of COVID. And she said, yes. And I said, do you swim there? And she said, no, I can't because I don't have a flexible schedule. I can't book my lane eight days in advance. And I told her, well, I said, I have a pool that I can go to where you don't have to do that. And Greg, within five minutes, the thing that I said materialized. Mm. A neighbor, she lives on the same street. I didn't know she lived there. And I can take her to my pool. I mean, that seems like a stupid example. But I'm telling you, I thought the thought and I said, wouldn't it be nice if, so what if my pineal gland gave a big squeeze and there she was? Right. We don't know the nature of reality. This is the thing. This is what's so hard to grasp. It's almost as hard as understanding nanotech. What if everything in your life is created by you in your reality? Like, I know you. I've even met you a couple of times in person. Mm-hmm. I created you in my reality, and you created me in your reality. But there are people I don't know and have never met, and therefore I haven't created them, may never create them. They have never created me and won't create me. So we create the things that we want connection with, good or bad, right? Yes, I'm very much on this page, and I think that's a a great example with the neighbor and the pool. Because I've been hearing more and more people talk about the fact that everything out there, it's all a reflection of your inner world. And even in some strange paranormal experiences, when people see a UFO, if you talk to them, they'll say, oh, I was walking through the woods and I was in a state of despair and I was calling out to the universe for some kind of sign or something to help me. And sometimes we say, oh, it was an angel or it was God, but It's not unlike what you did with the neighbor. It's like you can manifest things that you are looking to see or want to cross your path. And it's the same with signs. When people talk about, especially Native American lore, they have this idea that everything is conscious. And when you see a crow fly overhead, that's a sign. When you see a a fox cross your path, that carries some kind of symbolic weight to it. And when I see certain animals out there, I'm like, you know, why is that crossing my path? Or did I subconsciously think that I wanted to see it? Or is it a sign of something? I just am not very good at at the language of life and the language of signs and symbols yet. But I am kind of on this path where it does seem like 
Everything in our external world is a reflection and an outpouring of our inner world. Absolutely. And Greg, I wouldn't say that you haven't learned the language of signs and symbols enough yet. You are going to make your own language of signs and symbols. Mm. Every Indian, the word was puha, P-U-H-A, and it meant medicine. And the young warrior strove to find puha for himself. And he had his own sort of array of animals and indicators, let's just say, which fed and comprised his own particular kind of medicine. You're looking for your medicine. And this is not medicine in the allopathic sense. This is the stuff that charges you, your electricity, your the way that they're mapping our biome on the blockchain. You can map in just as detailed a way your life in your consciousness. Yet it has to be flexible. I mean, you can't hope to control every aspect of it. You know, you have to allow room for the trade-off, the back and forth, the play of your intentions and then the manifestations. And I have decided that the stuff that you create in your life can often be created with a terrible glitch in it. I've created things, or let's just say, to use the conventional, things have happened that seemed really nice and wonderful, and then they turned out to have this really ugly element to them that was a lesson I had to make my way through and learn. So as you create, you're really just improving and improving and improving your mastery of your own language of lessons and adventures. And so we're all in this vortex. We're all facing COVID, but we're all going to handle it differently. Not everybody is going to be pushed into the COVID reality. People are already handling it differently. Mm -hmm. Great points. And whether it's a swimming partner or a falcon or a UFO, how can you say that you didn't manifest what you see when we don't even know how we beat our own hearts? You're doing that and you're saying, you know, that's an automatic process and you don't even really know how it happens. You can't keep your heart from beating for like a minute or two. You know, you can't control it. It's just occurring. So even when we don't understand basic physiological effects and how they run, how can we also look out in the world and say, well, there's no way I did that? You don't know. Right. You did it because it happened to you. So you were part of the architecture of that thing. Now the question is, if you don't like it, you have to step into it and deal with it. And that's what I kind of like about these COVID times, because we're not like hanging back with bated breath, waiting for this shit to happen. It was already happening slowly. You know, we were always told, oh, well, they're boiling the frog, boiling the frog. Now they really turned up the heat. Boom, much higher flame. And you know what? Now it's time for us to deal with this. It's not coming, it's here. But, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, the vaccine hasn't come yet. What about when the vaccine comes? Listen, back in March, a lot of people were not expecting that by December, the shit would still be flying with the masks and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. So how could anyone have thought back in March, well, this will be going on nine months from now. But we're here nine months from now. And I'm proud to say that restaurants in my town are staying open. They have signs in front saying we are not going to close. Mm. 
a friend of mine put it very well. She said, we have to change our consciousness about this. Right. We have to take that intention and put it back in ourselves. Remember, the worst thing is seeing your intention taken out of you and hovering above you in this diluted way. Weak intention is worse than no intention at all. Mm. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And man, we have just talked about so much stuff today. You are such a good researcher and orator for stuff that I consider to be pretty complex. It's always fun to talk to you. Before we really call it in, remind people about the importance of your newsletter, the things they'll find in your store, anything else you'd like them to know about following up with you or just staying plugged into what you're doing. Yes, thank you, Greg. My store, avatarproducts.com, that's really what keeps me going. So there are things that I have discovered, I have created. I mean, we have LED bulbs that don't destroy your eyesight cell phone shielding cases, all kinds of things. I make a lot of these things. And in fact, I even have a little breathable muslin organic cotton mask that's not available on the website by credit card. You have to mail order it because it comes from me directly. And I have a shipping partner for my website these days. But the masks has a little label on it and it says useless placebo or walking biohazard, or COVID zombie. But the good thing is you can actually breathe through these masks. And I made one for myself, and I started to send them out to friends who absolutely had to wear one in this or that instance. So that, oh, by the way, I have to throw in a plug for the laundry powder. Christine's laundry powder, a lot of the stuff on my store is made by friends of mine who have become friends or they were friends to start with and they did something wild and cool. Laundry powder is mind-blowing. So definitely try it out. You only need a tablespoon and your clothes come out so amazing. And it's not detergent. Okay, my newsletter is something that, oh my God, I think sometimes about how many years will I keep doing this? I do it monthly. Sometimes it's a double issue. And I really go into different nooks and crannies of curiosity and then kind of put it together in written form. For instance, I did one and a half newsletters on Indians, double issue and a bit of the issue before because I couldn't believe what I was learning. So people can subscribe. It's by donation, a minimum of $50 a year. And on my website, sophiasmallstorm.com, there's a little icon with the address. So I do shows periodically with hosts. But I must say, Greg, the hosts that want to interview me about my newsletters are dropping off. I don't know if it's because they've been suppressed on YouTube and they're going through, you know, those horrible, depressing, muzzling times. But this is the first show I've done, really, on newsletters in quite a while. Oh. So I will do shows every now and then, and that way people who don't subscribe can hear a bit about it. But the best is to just subscribe, because each one is a surprise. Nobody ever knows, even me, what I'm going to write about next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very diverse, and I appreciate those newsletters a lot. And <laughs> I guess there we have it. Well, thanks so much for doing this again. It has been too long, but... Your knowledge is very valuable, in particular when we are under such pressure. So I really appreciate everything. Do take care and keep fighting the good fight. 
Thank you, Greg. And you too continue to have a spring in your step. <laughs> I will try. Thank you. And all the listeners, thank you. Yes. Serenity now, dear people, this is the way. And what a way to round out the year. Sophia Smallstorm, always a welcome guest. Got a good one planned for the first show of 2020 as well. As much as I am kind of getting tired of going over aspects of the pandemic plan, it is nice to bring people back years later to basically have them say, I told you so. I feel like I actually owe it to some people to give them the chance to say, see, all this talk of synthetic life and biomedical agendas that I brought up three years ago, we're in it now. But it is how Sophia frames true health and the cause of disease that I find really interesting and most likely correct. When I look at the range of what people are saying about how our bodies work, what wellness really is, how industrialization and Rockefeller medicine have set us back and twisted our understanding, Sophia's research and conclusions seem on the money. They're very valuable to me. I'm sure a lot of you guys feel the same way. And I'm looking at my calendar, I'm looking at my lineup for the next month and a half, and there's definitely a fair amount of old guests returning to talk about where the elite are trying to take us on the road to Agenda 2030, and even new guests who really want to offer us their perspective on all things The Great Reset and COVID-1984. But outside of what I've already agreed to, I would like to get back to the weird. I would like to get back to magic, and I'm sure astrology will be part of the looking forward to the new year lineup. But some of the more paranormal stuff, the unexpected stuff, that is what feels exciting to me now. But just like last year when we had all this energy welling up, all this excitement for 2020, happens every year, but in 2020, I think we all saw that energy amplified back in January. And I know the energetic theme this year is, well, I'm glad 2020 is over, now we can put it all behind us. But I think... <laughs> We really know that the plan is marching forward regardless of the arbitrary calendar change. The Grand Conjunction? Now that's a different story. Funny how they passed the big stimulus spending package on that very day. Some people in Congress were like, this is 5,000 pages. Why does it need to be voted on today? I can't read this. Well, timing is everything, right? Maybe those packages, as insane as they are, will be some sort of great revealing of the deep depths of the institutionalized corruption. Or maybe nothing will happen. But what I'm trying to say is the memes and the energy out there is let's move on from 2020. Of course, who wouldn't feel that way? But we know that we really can't. And be that as it may, I'm also saying I've been trying to balance out current events with fun, wild stuff like Chad Stemke's Portal Places or Chris Bledsoe's Alien Angel Encounters or Lynn McTaggart's Power of Eight. Even when so much still comes back to the World Economic Forum, lockdowns, and viruses. And I've got to find some weird, totally unrelated stuff for my own sanity at least. But if you got that level 11 weird, bring it to me. I am ready to put it on the books. But conversations like today's, I also really do like a lot. I was going to title it Esoteric Health, but I don't think Sophia would really frame it that way. I guess it's more just natural health or holistic health. 
But that, coupled with a little manifestation thread, these are the paradigms that are more in line with an esoteric type of guy like Rudolf Steiner, right? So it's sort of magic adjacent or in the vicinity of the esoteric worldview. Maybe it's just that in a reality that's looking more synthetic and digital, nature is so foreign as to almost seem like magic. I don't know. Maybe you guys aren't reading the same news I am, but people love their ones and zeros. But that is something we've learned. The more you look deeply at nature, the more magical and esoteric it seems. But I guess that does do it for THC interviews in 2020. Despite everything, I hope that a lot of you can look at your lives and point to at least a few areas where you're better off today than you were this time last year. I definitely can, and I know I got this weird job, but a lot of my inner circle can also say that. Whether it's getting a new tech certification and changing career paths, or getting a nicer place, or getting pregnant after a long road of trying. There are a lot of wins out there. Cable news is obviously very obsessed with the negative, with the losses, but there are wins. So I hope you can look at the way 2020 is presented on the news or through the memes and at least find a few reasons to say, actually, it wasn't all that bad compared to the realities of a lot of other people who weren't as ready for this as I was or had to see their worldview turned upside down, had to wrestle with establishment trust issues that I wrestled with a long time ago. It's like Sophia said, a lot of us have been training for this, at least mentally. And if some of it is inevitable, stopping it isn't an option. Well, then at least riding some of these waves without being crushed by them, mentally, economically, physically, that's something to celebrate, and it's something that's way more within our control. But 2020 did get very real, and I hope that you're happy with the choice of hitching up to the THC wagon. We rode this thing out together. I think we learned a lot. I think we saw a lot of changes in conspiracy culture. I think we witnessed some self-proclaimed truth warriors really behave in cringy ways when the pressure was high. We saw people who are typically critical of international medical corporations and predatory class philanthropy and media hype fall right into the traps that I thought they'd been talking about for years. Which kind of shows that some people never really believed what they were saying. I do hesitate to call anyone out, not really my thing. I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about, but it's really not about them anyway. I guess what I'm really trying to say is that by comparison, I hope you're satisfied with how I've looked at things with the guests I've chosen in this past year. Sometimes I did feel like I was scrambling to catch the right thread, and sometimes I felt like the pressure was getting uncomfortably heavy. I don't think I'm one to get rattled easily, and there were times this year that I definitely felt more overwhelmed than usual. And to kind of go through a vulnerable process pretty publicly is not comfortable. And well, I've had to do that more and more, it seems. But I felt like I was very well tested this year. Let's just put it that way. But we have no choice but to push forward. And I trust that you feel that I'm here to genuinely help and that THC has important things to offer. And that I really do care. But that doesn't mean we can't also have a little bit of fun too, right? In fact, I wonder what Donald Marshall is up to these days. <laughs>
But as always, there is a second hour of this interview for those who reciprocate in this digital offering exchange. Today in the second hour, we talked about sunlight, our skin and our eyes, the depth and importance of breath, Freud and the brain pill paradigm, taking the soul out of people, and some lessons from Comanche history. Sophia is an interesting lady, and I appreciate her insights. Stay caught up to date with her work, and you will be in good hands. And that goes for so, so many guests we've talked to this year who have just been very, very crucial and helpful in unpacking all this stuff and reminding us what true health is, helping us to stay hip to the game, as they say. And we will carry on. Thanks again for listening. I'm living my dream. And cheers to you living yours. And all of us enjoying the places where they overlap. I've done my part. Your move, medical misinformers, oxidative stress inducers, and machinations of the would-be dream derailers. Your fucking move. Get through the gate downtown. Walking fast. Security pass and I'm homebound. Plan, but I got flagged, beaten and gagged, and my hands bowed. Now I'm screwed, I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys, those documents. Bioweapon disease, so many coups, blue beam two and more conspiracies. I was close to the prize, but now these guys are wiping clean my precious memory. I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys. Those documents would expose the lies, cause I know they've got a thousand files if I could just break through tonight.